Okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hi, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by a veritable celebrity, Carol Markowitz. Uh, <laughs> she is a columnist for the New York Post. Many of you may have read her stuff. Um, and she is also the author of a new book called Stolen Youth, um, which we encourage you to go out and buy as soon as possible. And we're going to give you a little bit of a preview of what is in that book. I'm sorry, she's the co-author with another one of our podcast guests, Bethany Mandel, um, co-author of Stolen Youth. And uh, we're going to give you a little bit of a preview of what's in the book and uh, what you can expect when you go out and buy it, which you should. So thanks so much for joining us, Carol. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So we'll start with the question that everybody wants to know. Uh, why did you write this book, Carol? Yeah, and why is it called Stolen Youth? <laughs> <laughs> so Bethany and I uh, have been friends and um, colleagues for many years, and we, we had sort of a similar trajectory um, in our writing. We would write it generally about culture. And especially for me, I think in the last few years, my topic became childhood more and more and, and the issues of children. Pre-pandemic, I had just a, a very wide range of things I would write about. But the pandemic hit. I saw the way kids were being targeted. I saw the way kids were being left behind. And I couldn't ignore it. I, I felt like it took up all of my oxygen. I had to write about it. So Bethany and I threw around the idea for a few years of writing a book together because we have sort of similar styles, but very different paths. She's a homeschooling mom of six. I was, uh, I had three kids always in public school. Now I have two in public and one in private. Um, and so we had very different ways of dealing with the problems that we felt kids were being, um, you know, presented with. And our original book title was Get Your Village Off My Children, um, because we just <laughs> felt like the idea that our kids are being raised by some village and not by us, it was just ridiculous to us. Um, and then it sort of expanded into this idea that this village is not getting off our children. They um, think that the kids belong to them. And this ideology, this woke ideology, we sort of shorthanded to that, but it's really just leftism is being pushed in every aspect of a child's life, not just in schools, but at the pediatrician's office and at the library and in the movies they watch and in every, every single way. Um, and so we set out to write this book to showcase what was going on and what to do about it. So wow. you said you you started this this book before, like you you started thinking about this long before the pandemic. So I was wondering if you could kind of think. I mean, before we get to sort of all the pandemic policies that we think hurt kids, yeah. um, you know, what were the kind of you know maybe the one or two kind of big things where you thought, wow, you know, people don't understand this. You know, this is outrageous. Like, why are they trying to sneak this in? Um, whatever institution it was, what were what do you think were the sort of the primary offending institutions and what right. were they doing? I remember the impetus for us was that we were, I was living in Brooklyn and my kids were just being asked to protest at their schools uh, for all different kinds of issues. And I thought that was insane. Um, the first protest was a climate one. And um, I, I write about this in the book because, you know, we, we tell parents to be brave. We tell parents to stand up for their children, but I didn't. And I wasn't brave. My son, my first grader at the time had just switched schools after the school year started and they were having this climate march. And I, 
you know, ask the teacher, like, what does this entail? And they're like, oh, you know, we're just going to make some signs and, and, and march around the courtyard. And I was like, oh, you know, I really don't want him to do this, but I also didn't want him to stick out. And so I went along with it. And, you know, I hate that I did that. I would never do it again, but I understand, you know, I understand the, what, what I was thinking at the time. I didn't want him to be ostracized. I didn't want him to be different. He had just gotten there. Um, and the thing is that this is exactly what they count on. They count on you not sticking up for your kid because you don't want the kid to be different. But the thing is that leftism is deeply, deeply unpopular and they have to rely on this kind of social pressure to get us to do what they want. And I, you know, it didn't stop with a climate march. Then they had a gun, an anti-gun march. Then they had a no place for hate march. Um, and of course, at that point already, none of my kids were doing any of that. But I, I didn't stand up in that first instance because I was afraid of the social pressure. And so th that was really, I remember the first kind of thing that we started thinking, like they're turning our kids into these child soldiers for their causes. And we set out to look into it. Yeah. And Carol, your personal upbringing, I think, is worthy of illuminating for our audience because it sounds like where you were born and raised, yeah. you've kind of seen where this path kind of leads to. So I was born in the Soviet Union and I came to the U.S. when I was a small child. And then I grew up in Brooklyn um, in fairly rough areas. Um, and I just felt like... Um, a lot of the stories that I had grown up hearing from my parents, from my grandmother, about forced conformity and about the way that you are pressured to say only one thing, only one way, and never, ever deviate from that. And also perform performance was such a big thing in the Soviet Union. Spectacle was such a big thing. And these protests are part of that. It's not just saying, oh, our, you know, we care about climate change. It's making your little children march for it. Um, and so the stories that I had heard of, you know, the little octobrists in, in the Soviet Union and um, all the different groups that always targeted children in these totalitarian countries, um, suddenly a lot of it felt very familiar. And I have to say that my whole life, I've been a conservative my whole life. You know, I always say you, you don't come from the Soviet Union and become a liberal um, generally. <laughs> but, you know, I've been a conservative my whole life. Um, but and I had had people ask me like during the Clinton years, like, doesn't it feel Soviet to you? And I'd be like, no, not at all. Actually, not nothing about this feels familiar at all. But suddenly it did feel familiar. And it, it those stories that I had heard and what my family trauma had been suddenly seemed very present in America. And I know other people talk about this as well. Dennis Prager um, has recently been talking about um, how his trips to the Soviet Union and the way that people used to kind of look around before they would speak to him is reminiscent of the way now people see him in an airport and they'll kind of look around and then be like, I'm a fan of yours. And that's scary. That shouldn't be happening in America. Yeah, I, I think, I, I don't know, maybe Ian's had this experience too, but I've definitely had this experience. My kids are, you know, have long been at a Jewish day school and I will um, every once in a while get parents say like, I read your book review in commentary, like very softly. I mean, commentary is obviously like a Jewish magazine. Right. So it's not like, 
but you know, you have, I read your, you know, I read that piece you wrote in the Wall Street Journal, but don't tell anyone like, right. and it's, you know, I, I, this has been going on for a few years and I think you can make light of it, but it's also true that like, once you get into a community where people are sort of afraid of having those discussions too loudly, and I think, you know, it definitely became so much worse, you know, after 2016, yes. um, you know, then, it, and, you know, I just remember having these, you know, so, you know, friendships that, you know, you know, disintegrated over these things. And, you know, I, I wasn't a Trump supporter, but that didn't, right, that it didn't matter. No, it, it, I've written about that in the past where it didn't even matter if you were a Trump supporter or not, you had to do it with fervor. It had to be passion. Um, and that's again, very Soviet. It's not enough to say you're a communist. You have to show it. You have to sign. Prove it. Yes. Yeah. You, you have to provide the spectacle. That's part of the process. And that we're doing it in America should freak everybody out. So were your kids, have your kids been embarrassed? Like, I mean, I think that is the fear of a lot of parents, not like just yeah. embarrassment, but like you you don't want to necessarily, yeah. um, you know, have your kids be social outcasts. Like what, what was your experience right. and, and, you know, how did you talk to your kids about it? So, yeah, I, they, um, my, my middle son, who is very outspoken, he's a really big history buff. Um, he is really into just ideas and he's just, He's, he's a lot, <laughs> um, would have these challenges at school where he would just say like masking makes no sense. Nobody's wearing a mask outside except kids. Like, you know, he'd hear it obviously from me and from other places, but he would carry it so strongly into the school um, that it, it started to become a problem. And before we, so we moved uh, to Florida about a year ago, a little over a year ago. And before we moved, um, you know, he had a teacher say to him, like, pull your mask up outside. And, you know, he did. He was in third grade at the time. Um, but then she said to him, like, I don't care if your mom tweets about me. Like, mm -hmm. that. yeah, no. uh huh. No. Well, th th this is the first time I'm telling the story, actually, because I, I always kind of like shied away from it. But um, then I wrote to the principal and I was like, this is just so not acceptable that she's like threatening my kid. And she's like, and then the principal said that she denied, you know, saying this, this is like completely, she never said anything like that. She doesn't even know what Twitter is. This is the line. So I found this teacher's Twitter account. Exactly. You <laughs> sent it to the principal. You realize I was there's like, such a thing as Google and search. Yeah. Well, the teacher had been like commenting on like American Idol or whatever, some show on her Twitter. So she had a Twitter. She knew what it was. Like it was, you know, so. That's, that's the um, kind of intellectual engagement we really like our teachers to be involved in. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that's that, you know, so we've had stuff like that happen. Um, living in Florida is, has been so calming in this way where I don't worry about this kind of thing going on. Um, and I don't whisper and nobody whispers to me. It's like, you know, people read, you know, I saw somebody reading a Pete Hegseth, you know, as a Fox news host book by the pool and there's no fear about that. And, you know, obviously it's, um, living in a red state is, is what it is. But the thing is, I don't think they would be nobody would say a word if they were reading Bernie Sanders by the pool. And that's really the difference here. The, I don't think conservatives would be like, what are you doing reading that Bernie Sanders book? They would just be like, eh, all right, read whatever you want. By yeah. the way, Bernie Sanders was on. Uh, did you see? Uh, oh, yes. ago, he, he, <laughs> in the debate between equity versus equality of opportunity, he said equality of opportunity is what he would prefer. Yeah. Like, that's just what makes sense. Everyone should be. Yeah. Treated the same, not equity, not towards yeah. equal outcomes. He has oh, no idea what he's talking about. Canceled. <laughs> well, no, 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 no. We have to give him credit. No, no, no. <laughs> he does not know the <laughs> philosophy that he has spent his life like pushing well, on. Exactly. Us. 
No, but that's what's so is so revealing. <laughs> yeah. I directly asked it. Right. So there was this uh, there was this line in, in Sex in the City that I always liked. And I know Sex in the City, sorry, but there was this line where Harry uh, says to his wife Charlotte, like, can we not raise our kids based on the book you haven't finished reading yet? And that's what I feel like with Bernie Sanders. Like, <laughs> can we not have this nonsense pushed to us that you don't even know what it is? You're not even sure. Oh gosh. So I wanted to ask you about um, because you you talk in the book about the pediatrician's office and sort of how the American Academy of Pediatrics was kind of uh, co-opted, you know, during COVID and how it's become much more political. What what kind of impact do you think it has? I mean, you know, I think traditionally everybody thinks, you know, you you trust your doctor, like, you know, ask your doctor. That's yeah. like the most the most, you know, um, important thing you can do is have this conversation with a doctor because they're supposed to be sort of the most objective authorities on things related to, you know, how you're raising your kid and their health and things like that. Right. So, you know, what do you think happened there? And, and, and is there any way back? Well, what we think happened and what we lay out in Stolen Youth is that they were faced with the same conformist pressure. And it starts at medical schools. These medical schools have gone woke. And the difference between wokeism and like the old leftism is that wokeness does not allow for any deviation from the opinion. The opinion can change at any moment, um, but you may not uh, step away, step out of line at all. You know, a great example of that is like, you could say like, I'm not racist, but no, that's no longer the language. The language now is I'm anti-racist and you must use the correct words. Um, and so what happened is that these pediatricians uh, are all nervous about getting canceled or even, you know, having professional repercussions. And so they all line up and say the exact same thing things that they know to be untrue, like the masking for toddlers, um, they knew they couldn't not know. I'm not a doctor. And I knew that little kids need to see your mouth when you talk in order to develop their language skills. They knew, and yet they had to fall into line and say something that they knew to be untrue. And we're seeing this with the transgender conversation where they're only allowed to have one perspective. And that is you must affirm any child, even if five girls in one class say that they're all trans, you must affirm them all and say, yep, you're trans. And you, you know, if you need to take the next step, I'm here for you. Yep. And you're no longer a girl. You're a boy. Right. Or, or, you know, non-binary, very popular now. And so, that all of these, and that every, you know, doctor from whatever town, you know, it, it, you know, that the American Academy of Pediatrics was able to sort of get this message out and sort of enforce this conformity was also, um, you know, because you, I guess you'd, you know, you could imagine seeing this in sort of particular pockets, but the way it was sort of just swallowed whole by a, by this whole community of professionals is, I think, one of the shocking elements here. It really was scary. And so my co-author, Bethany Mandel, has six kids and again, that she homeschools. And so we take different paths and um, hers is to kind of exit society as much as possible. But she can't exit her pediatrician, right? There's still no option for her to like not go, not take her kids to the doctor. So it becomes really scary where they're the only option. And that option is, is really, uh, you know, untrustworthy and you, you can't rely on them. Again, that feels very Soviet to me, where you're, you can't trust the words that your doctor is saying because they're being pressured to say them is scary. And I, that's, you know, the theme throughout the book is that this virus that has taken over all of these institutions and organizations is coming for your kids. And if you don't fight this, if you don't stand up to it, if you don't call it out, 
we're all in big trouble. So what's the pathway out? What are some of the practical things that parents can actually do? We provide two very different paths. Hers is uh, pulling her kids out of almost everything um, and and really not sheltering them, but but you know pre-watching all movies or pre-reading all books, um, not letting them have access to any number of things that um, my kids would, for example, have access to. Um, I definitely do not pre-watch their YouTube videos, gaming and whatever I what we end up doing is having these conversations um, about everything. My kids know where I stand. That's really important. I think a lot of parents do not tell their kids what they believe or what their values are or what their family stands for. And the kids really don't know. Um, and these are, you know, not always great, comfortable conversations. Sometimes they are very awkward. Um, and so in our house, for example, when we were living in New York, um, I would say, somewhere between 50 to 70% of my daughter's then 12 years old friends came out as trans. And so we had the conversations where um, we explained to her what our thinking is on this. It doesn't mean that these are not your friends. It doesn't mean you can't respect them. It doesn't mean you can't love them. Um, but we feel it as a social contagion. This numbers are crazy. At one point I asked her, what percentage of the country do you think is trans? And she was like 50, you know, some insane number <laughs> uh, because she was seeing this play out in her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, openness is really big from, from my path. We also provide strategies on how to fight back, how to, how to have FOIA requests, how to run for your school board, um, how to form communities. So again, going back to the, the leftism it's so unpopular. Only 7% of the country describes themselves as very liberal. And that number is probably even lower when you get into like progressivism. Um, so what you have is a really unpopular philosophy being pushed through with force, with conformist force. And that just means that you have to find people, form a group and be able to stand up to it together. Nobody wants porn in the school library. Nobody. But they're all, you know, kind of pretending it's not happening. And what you have to do is face reality, find allies and fight back. In in terms of thinking about the, um, I mean, the running for school board obviously became very, very popular during the, the pandemic. And a lot of people who previously had not considered this as an option um, were willing to get more politically involved. Um, it, it, where do you, do, do you, do you see that energy still there now? I mean, um, obviously, you know, you, you moved to Florida, maybe people are not as, um, as excited because they, they're not as angry. And I wonder whether that's true in the rest of the country now, you know, schools are reopened and yeah. nobody's really wearing masks. Like, is this something that's going to just die out naturally, I guess is one question. It's a concern of ours. And that's partly why we wrote this book, because the, we so we open with that chapter on history and totalitarian societies. And those totalitarian societies, those people can say, we didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know what was happening to the kids. We had no access to information. We can't say that in America. So to us, it's yes, we do see a lower intensity now among parents. The kids are not mass anymore. They're, they're back in school. But for example, in Florida, we're having this whole thing where they keep finding these pornographic books in libraries, in school libraries, in elementary and middle school. Uh, and the left is generally pretending that it's just not happening. Like, no, this isn't real. DeSantis wants to ban just all books. And that's 
insane and ridiculous and parents know it's not true. Um, if you can't read a book on the news, you know, nightly news and you probably can't have it in your elementary kids library. And, and th this is happening everywhere. So one of our main messages in the book is that just because you live in a red state or in a red city or in a red town and, and you think that your school is fine and you think your kid is safe, um, that, that that's just not true. It's happening everywhere. And it's not, um, it's not limited to red or blue spaces. The, the, this uh, indoctrination is being picked up at teachers' colleges, and then they disperse throughout the country, and they're teaching at a school near you. It is amazing when you see these videos of school board meetings, a parent will take one of these pornographic books and start reading it at the You're school. Like, no. no, 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 you can't read that. That's horrible. Right. Well, isn't that the point? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. If you can't read it out loud at a school board meeting, then your kid shouldn't have it in the school library. It is interesting what you're saying about sort of how the particular populations like teachers who interact with kids tend to sort of even no matter what state they're in, you know, mm -hmm. and I see this in kind of the world of child welfare, too, like that, that they are coming into this with kind of probably a particular political ideology, and then that's being reinforced in their training. So whether they're in Oklahoma or Massachusetts, you know, they're, they're coming at this with the same kind of views. And, you know, and so you'll find that wherever you are. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't even, I'm not even sure that they get to the teachers colleges already having their political identities formed. I really think they're being formed there. If you had told me when we started writing this book that they use Marxist texts in teachers colleges as a, as a matter of course, I would have been really shocked. And I, I, I was really shocked when I discovered this. I think I would have just thought like, oh, come on, that's like a conspiracy theory. It's not a conspiracy <laughs> theory. They're literally using Marxist books in teachers colleges that teach our kids. And then the, the teachers go and, and teach, you know, all over the place. This is happening. And it's crazy because I, I, di I didn't want to believe it either, but it is, it is reality. It is actually happening. Well, another manifestation that you're starting to see is the reduction of standards or elimination of standards, right? Yeah. So it's not just the wokeness, the the lived impact. So, you know, Columbia just decided they're no longer going to require yeah. SATs. So how, did, how does this kind of assault on excellence um, link to what you see happening? It's all part of the same thing where it's also very Soviet, right? Everybody's the same where you don't have any special skills or any special traits. You're you're equal to everybody else in every single way. And who benefits from this Columbia decision? They took away the SATs, but they didn't take away legacy admissions. Uh, you know, in the Soviet Union, if your dad was someone important, then you were probably going to get a cushy job. Not very different from what's happening here right now. The whole merit thing is actually helps you know, poor, less educated um, families rise up. And that's uh, just always been the path that if you can get your kid a good education, then they can succeed. But if you get your kid a good education and they succeed and they can't get into Columbia and they can't get into all these schools because they don't have the right parents. I mean, that's just, it's a system that benefits one group of people and it, it, the left is absolutely benefiting from it. Yeah. And if you can get your kids a good education is a big if too, anyway. Right. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I think that's all the time we have right now, but we want to thank Carol so much for joining us. Please yeah. go out and buy her book, Stolen Youth. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get this podcast on the AEI podcast channels or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so with that, I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. 
And I'm Ian Rowe. Carol, thank you. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you thank for you so providing much. ideas and pathways for how we can win mm -hmm. over time. So thank you. Thank you.